0: Good afternoon, everyone. This is Matt Bieber from the New Mexico Department of Health. Thanks again for joining our regular Uh COVID-19 update. Today we'll be covering a range of topics, as we always do, and our guests will include uh, some usual participants and some new guests. We'll be joined by uh, DOH Acting Secretary David R. Scrace, DOH Deputy Secretary Laura Patahone, DOH Deputy Secretary and General Counsel Billy Jimenez, and the UNMH Associate Chief Nursing Officer, Jennifer Vosberg. Uh, so with that, I'll turn it over to our principals. They'll offer a range of slides and perspectives. And when they conclude, we'll turn to our normal Q&A session and we'll provide some, some guidance uh, at that point. Thanks so much and uh, all yours, Dr. Grace.
1: Thank you very much, Matt. And uh, I'd like to introduce imminently here, Laura Parahone, who's gonna do a little bit more brief uh, overview of what's going on in vaccines. Uh, this is by design, because actually it turns out there's a lot more going on in vaccines this week than any other weeks uh, in recent memory, but she's going to go through that quickly. We're going to talk about cases, do a deeper dive into what's happening in our hospitals, where uh, Jennifer uh, Vosberg is really going to be helpful to us, and then have a announcement about next steps here in New Mexico. So with that, uh, Laura, I'm going to turn over to you to update everybody on where we are with vaccines so far and what's coming up in the next few weeks, thank you.
0: Absolutely, thank you so much. All right, so hi everybody. Um, Thanks again for tuning in today. So for our vaccine progress update today, once again, go New Mexico. We're at 81.1% of all New Mexicans 18 and over and 62% of 12 to 17 year olds have received at least a first dose, so that's really exciting. And then we continue to slowly but surely increase the number of New Mexicans fully vaccinated at 71.6% of New Mexicans at 18 and over fully vaccinated and 53.5%, 12 to 17 year olds. And then 5.3% of New Mexicans, you can see that on, the, um, on our dashboard now, have received a booster dose, uh, those 18 and over. 12 to 17 are still not yet eligible for boosters. Uh, next slide. Um, so here's a little update on booster dose administration in New Mexico. We continue to effectively administer the Pfizer booster doses, which is the one that is still that is approved right now. Um, since August, we've had 81,364 doses delivered, and then since September 24th, when we had the booster doses, um, over 58,000 doses have been delivered. So you can see we're steadily increasing those. So thank you to all of you who've uh, gotten your booster shots. Uh, NEXT SLIDE. SO THIS IS REALLY EXCITING. IT'S BEEN A BUSY MONTH FOR VACCINES. Um, THESE ARE THE ANTICIPATED BOOSTERS FOR MODERNA AND J&J. NEXT SLIDE. YOU CAN can SEE IN THE NEWS THAT um, THE MODERNA BOOSTERS ARE REALLY MAKING THEIR WAY THROUGH THE FEDERAL APPROVAL PROCESS. Um, MOST RECENTLY THEY HAD A UNANIMOUS VOTE THAT RECOMMENDED THE FDA RECOMMENDED AUTHORIZATION OF THE MODERNA uh, a dose at half of half a dose for the booster, and really the available data support the safety and effectiveness of this vaccine uh, for the same group as the Pfizer group. So, 65 and over, those who are in long-term care facilities, so all our nursing homes, uh, 18 to 64 year olds with high risk of severe COVID, and those uh, 18 to 64 year olds with heightened job and institutional exposure that put them at higher risk of um, COVID. Um, And then at least uh, you have to get it at least six months after the completion of your primary series and they will meet again, Uh, the ACIP will meet on the October 21st to make recommendations regarding the Moderna COVID-19 booster doses. And we predict that if that happens, then by the end of this week, we'll be able to actually have the whole approval process for the Moderna vaccine. Next slide. Same exact thing for the J&J booster dose approval. So hopefully by the end of this week, we'll also have the final approval for J&J and those Uh, who are 18 and older and then at least two months after a single dose of the primary vaccine will also be available. So um, a lot of people I know were worried about the J&J initially, but the actual uh, improvement after you get your booster dose is actually 94% um, effectiveness. So that's really exciting for all of those who have gotten J&J. So next slide. Um, This is uh, exciting, uh, COVID-19 vaccines for 5 to 11-year-olds. So next slide. Clinical trial results like we've been sharing shows that the Pfizer vaccine is super effective and safe for 5 to 11-year-olds. They looked at three groups, 5 to 11-year-olds, two to four-year-olds, and six months old, to just under two years old. And they have found that these smaller doses uh, for the children are extremely effective. Next slide. Um, The Pfizer pediatric COVID vaccine is super exciting for pediatricians because they will be delivered in smaller doses and also um, in in sets that, that are smaller packs that can be extended in your refrigerator. So if you are a pediatrician and you haven't signed up yet to be a Pfizer uh, vaccine provider for your kids, um, this is the time because uh, you could just go to takecarenewmexico.org, sign up and like I said, it's smaller doses, um, it's smaller packs and stay in your refrigerator longer for your kids. Next slide. Oh, whoops. Okay, (laughs) okay, Uh, great. So um, in the next slide, it just shows the process for five to 11 year olds um, the EUA basically uh, got a little bit scrunched, but um, October 26 was the review and um, recommendation, right, by the Vaccines um, FDA Committee. Then the next step is the FDA approval sometime early this week. Then um, review and recommendation by ACIP, the uh, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices on November 2nd and 3rd. THEN REVIEW AND FINAL APPROVAL BY CDC, AND THEN REVIEW AND APPROVAL BY THE NEW MEXICO MEDICAL ADVISORY COMMITTEE, SO WE REALLY THINK THAT WE'LL PROBABLY HAVE VACCINES FOR CHILDREN BY EARLY NOVEMBER, SO THAT IS VERY EXCITING. Um, NEXT SLIDE. OKAY, GREAT. THERE IT GOES. IT FILLED IN. OKAY. THANK YOU, Brianna. so vaccinated the unvaccinated is still our number one priority. So uh, New, Mexican, New Mexico's 71.6, a fully vaccinated rate for 18 years and older, has really helped protect our children, uh, while other states have seen a huge surge in hospitalizations amongst children and adolescents since the rise of the Delta variant, with 10 times increase in hospitalization for zero to four-year-olds and 10 times hospitalizations among unvaccinated adolescents we haven't seen that in New Mexico which is exciting because we have had a great um you know uptake of the vaccine so vaccinating 5 to 11 year olds for us presents such an exciting opportunity to really increase community immunity in New Mexico. Say that three times fast. So anyways, um, so even though kids, you know, get sick less often and die less often, they can still contract and transmit COVID at the same rate as adults. So vaccinating kids will really also help us protect our adults. And as a family physician, you know, we take care of lots of kids And for us, like, you know, and also I imagine for other people who are parents of five to 11 year olds, it is just so exciting to know that. This is an opportunity for us to support kids of all races and ethnicities and from all walks of life because this vaccine will be free to everybody just like the other vaccines. It's proven to be safe and effective. You don't need insurance or ID. You can, we're making it available all all over the state. So really a great opportunity to vaccinate this really um, unprotected currently group of people which are five to 11 year olds. So really exciting for me as a family doc and also as a mom. Uh, Next slide. Um, So you can schedule your COVID vaccine appointment today. If you're unvaccinated, like I said, it's the best way for us to stop the pandemic. You can schedule your vaccine appointment. Um, We're also taking appointments for eligible booster recipients and parents of five to 11 year olds are really encouraged to register ahead of time at VaccineNewMexico.org. And also for those who do have difficulty getting onto the internet, um, we always have the call center. So thank you so much for getting vaccinated in New Mexico. And I'm gonna turn it over now to Dr. David Grace. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much, Laura, that's really helpful. Um, Matt, could we spotlight the ASL interpreter? They're not being seen on Facebook and we wanna make sure that they can be seen.
0: I will work with the tech team to do our best.
1: Thank you very much. So I'm going to go through uh, what's happening with COVID. Uh, unfortunately, we're now in week week six of um, uh, a plateau or a gradual rise in cases. Uh, you, this is uh, if you're new, the bl- each blue line is a day in the uh, COVID uh, pandemic, going all the way back to uh, March 10th when we had our first case. You can see that. Uh, We've been through the big wave and now we're in another wave that unfortunately is just as crushing to our hospitals as that big wave was. And we'll say a little bit more about that as we go on. You can see there that the last um, one, two, three, four, five, six weeks have not really uh, been much other than flat. And actually toward the end there, there's a little bit of an uptick in the trend. If you take those uh, last six weeks, including the one in the gray area. The next slide is sort of a close-up view of just that time period, the last six weeks, and you can see that typical Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, Saturday, Sunday, we filed the test by the date they were collected, which is different than what we report in the press releases. That's the news of the day, test results that we got in, and you can see here Uh, Actually, if you look at the last three weeks that aren't in gray, a steady upward trend in cases, Brianna, maybe you can highlight that uh, rather than what we were hoping would be what we thought was a leveling off or maybe even downturn. The reason we don't look in the gray area is that those numbers can only go up and they do continue to go up like many of the other curves. And so unfortunately, we are stuck at a level of disease in New Mexico that, as we know, is primarily on amongst unvaccinated individuals. That is more than our hospital systems can currently handle. Next slide, please. Uh, uh, you know, we have the CDC now model of red, orange, yellow, and blue. And while, as in past weeks, we've had some, uh, you know, a little bit of orange, occasionally a yellow county or two. Those are all gone now with this upward trend. Virtually every county has had a high rate and these are sort of ranked. uh, If you look at the total new cases per 100,000 people, we want that number to be below, oh gosh, 10, if we can get it. And you can see the closest county is a small one at 15. And so uh, and Harding, very small county at the bottom with 282 cases per 100,000, they don't have a lot of people in Harding. And so a small number of cases does push their numbers. Uh, They've been orange in the past, but not this time. So this, again, putting undue stress on our hospitals with this case count. Next slide, please. Uh, In addition, we're back above the 7.5 target for test positivity. Usually what that translates into for us uh, in DOH and the epidemiologists in particular is a loss of confidence in our Case numbers, we're really close to the line. So I think we're doing pretty well with our data. But once you get above 7.5, the chances are very good that you're missing cases, people aren't getting tested. And so we do wanna call on New Mexicans. I don't have three or four slides focusing on this today uh, because that is not our area of focus, but we wanna get that back under 8.1%. We wanna be below ideally five if we could. And the only way we can do that is to have everyone get tested who has symptoms, has had contact with someone who tested positive or has other reasons or concerns for being tested. And it's easy to do now, you can get tested in your own home, even if you like uh, through one of our uh, testing agencies. Next slide, please. So hospitalizations and deaths, and we're gonna spend a lot of time today on hospitalizations and I'll introduce Jennifer to you in a minute, Uh, but uh, let's go to the next slide. Uh, This is hospitalizations in New Mexico and we've labeled for you December uh, uh, 4th and I think the official public health order was December 9th when we enacted crisis standards of care. We were at a peak. And I think it's important to just pause for a minute and say, well, how can things be so bad in hospitals when seems like the number of COVID admissions is less than half? of what they were before. And the answer to that question is that people in the hospital are as sick as they've ever been, sicker actually, than they've ever been. And we have a lot more people in the hospital right now with non-COVID related illnesses, some of which we believe are related to delays in care uh, that occurred during the worst part of the pandemic when people were staying away from hospitals and even sometimes facilities were closed. Uh, for outpatient care. So next slide then, Brianna. Uh, This on the left is this curve you're used to seeing. You can see that we were in crisis standards of care last year, you can see we've been on that line or above the line between orange and red for quite some time. We've gotten some questions, well, what goes into the scoring system? And so, uh, and, and we'll show you last week's scoring, the things that got red, were the fact that there were, we were having to delay care and limiting it only to critical services. We were unable to transfer very many patients because of full uh, the full nature of our ICUs. And our transfer center was up and running, which of course you all know has been since July. Uh, triage and allocation, we, were, we were, out, were on full activation of all of our triage resources, uh, emergency, departments in general are saturated with long waits and record numbers of people leaving before they're even being seen. Our ICUs have been greater than 100% utilization uh, as a state for weeks and weeks now, probably four or five weeks. And non-ICU beds also uh, at or or above 100% capacity. Our modeling actually will be red this week as it has that upward trend. And uh, about last week it was in the orange range contingency. Uh, we were uh, unable to redeploy staff from one place to another to meet the needs of patients. And uh, uh, tiered staffing, you know, that we right now we don't have people, healthcare workers with COVID actually in the hospital, actively treating people with COVID. Uh, that's sort of a desperation move. We have not gone, had to go to that yet. Uh, capacity of our staff is insufficient to maintain all of the patient care and all the beds that we would otherwise like to be maintaining right now. Uh, staff ratios, we can't go any further with our staff, staff ratios than we've already done. And then uh, supply chain, actually having some issues with supply chain for things like IV fluids with uh, uh, oh five or six dozen ships sitting off the port of LA out in the ocean waiting to be unloaded because of a shortage of uh, doc workers. And so that's starting to affect our hospitals with routine supplies that are used to take care of COVID patients. And uh, we still have some recycling in place if we need to for PPE. That's no longer a, a crisis. That, that PPE one, the last one was read last time. So in most of these things, we're in a significant uh, dilemma with our ability to, to, uh, uh, be able to uh, uh, provide care. Next slide, please. Uh, These usual maps, I think we're back to the worst we've been with only 11 ICU beds available as of first thing this morning. Those are probably all full by now. You can see uh, none up in Farmington which is a particularly hard hit area right now and our thoughts and prayers go out to all the healthcare workers in Farmington. If you look at that, a box for Albuquerque, only two ICU beds uh, open. And I believe that's at Sandoval Regional Medical Center. And so a really tense situation. On the other hand, we've had a few more general uh, medical beds. You can see 87 total. And so what we're trying to do right now is push people who normally would need ICU care down into regular medical bed care. Of course, uh, that's pretty difficult to move someone from an ICU on ultra high flow oxygen that requires almost continuous monitoring down to a floor bed where a nurse has to take care of perhaps uh, six or eight or even more patients, depending on which shift they are working. And so uh, this is a major crunch. We have a major shortage in ICU beds. We showed you week before last the consequences for that man from Oklahoma who died because there was no ICU bed to transfer Him too, from Taos, and frankly, in any other state, uh, there was no ICU bed as well. Next slide, please. Uh, You know, this is just the past four weeks, about 90% of deaths we've had from COVID are uh, in people who are unvaccinated. And you can see 82% of hospitalizations, 76% of cases. We are having people who are uh, already vaccinated who are getting COVID and hence the re- the the push that's on now for booster shots for people to try to boost that Im- immunity and increase their resistance. Hospitalization numbers don't surprise me as much, even though they're higher because uh, of what we're seeing in the hospitals. Hospitals completely uh, full if, uh, uh, you know, completely full if, uh, of people who have either delayed care or just have really serious disease. This could be heart disease, intestinal bleeding. uh, It could be uh, out of control diabetes to the point of being in a coma. All things that simply can't be managed as an outpatient. And so it is true that we have less COVID patients in the hospital this time than last time. But when you look at the people who are in the hospital with COVID, again, four out of every five, more than four out of every five have uh, are un- remain unvaccinated. And that is one changeable thing we could do to actually get us out of the crisis that we're in right now. Next slide. We went back and did some math. This now is from February 1st to October 11th. And Dan from the Albuquerque Journal, if you're on my estimated math I did last time, I took the date of uh, reported deaths rather than the date of actual deaths. But since one February of this year, there have been 1,039 deaths in New Mexico, 967 of them are preventable. So almost a 1,000 people have died in New Mexico since February 1st that didn't need to die had they been uh, vaccinated. And that's that really is a tragedy. It's something that's avoidable. And again, uh, I respect everyone's right uh, to make a choice. I I uh, actually saw patients today. I don't recommend seeing patients on the same day as a press conference, because uh, our uh, Wi-Fi went out in our, my office and I drove back up home, uh, here at home, uh, in my office uh, to do the press conference today. Uh, spent some time talking to my only unvaccinated patient She's just waiting for a different type of vaccine to come up, says she will take it. But I'm very concerned about her health and uh, what will happen to her if she gets sick with COVID. We heard about Colin Paul today, uh, sad, sad death of one of America's great heroes uh, who died uh, from complications of COVID. He was vaccinated, of course, but nonetheless, this is a devastating, terrible disease, and we all need to do everything we possibly can do uh, to get this under control. Uh, next slide. The CDC came out with a really interesting slide this week uh, that's similar to the data that I was showing you. Uh, they go back to January 30th. Uh, we did not coordinate our efforts. We went back to February 1st. And, and this shows the rate of hospitalizations, the rate. So, and they're adjusted for age. So uh, it wouldn't matter if you had more or less old people or young people at a given point in time. And you can see the green line is this extremely low chance of being hospitalized. It's gradually crept up to something like 5 and 100,000. And then you can see the blue, and that's in vaccinated individuals. And the blue line here is the rate per 100,000 population. Again, age-adjusted, people over 18 uh, from January to August. hospitalization rates for the unvaccinated. So we're seeing the same thing that we've seen elsewhere. Uh, uh, COVID-NET as a CDC specialized uh, data collection system, electronic system, New Mexico has been part of that collection system, one of only 14 states uh, and and there are hospitals. New Mexico forwards the data along from DOH. And so we are really enjoying some of the best data in the country uh, but I certainly wish at least at the present time uh, we were seeing better results. Next slide please. Uh, Just an update on the number of New Mexico hospital workers that are vaccinated. Uh, The reason it can go up and down as a total is because uh, we get different levels of reporting each week. I think we had 90 percent last week But what you can see at the green bar last week, on October 10th, almost 88.5% of New Mexico hospital employees are fully vaccinated with another uh, three and a third percent partially vaccinated. There's about 7.5% of folks out there who have an approved exemption, and exemptions were allowed under the vaccine requirement public health order, and only 67 one hundredths of one percent. Two thirds of 1% of healthcare workers remain without either a vaccination or an exemption. And so, and it's gotten to the point that that number is so small. Brianna, if you can point to the red bar on 95, 5 over on the left, all the way to the left, you can see it's visible. You can actually see that number, and then you can see it pretty much disappear by the time you get to the end of the curve. And so that's another uh, three to 4,000 healthcare workers that have been vaccinated as a result of this. And we think that is keeping much of our healthcare workforce still in action, not missing work uh, because of COVID infections. We all know from early in the pandemic that healthcare workers have some of the highest infection rates of anyone. And then sadly, uh, this week we we will in all likelihood surpass 5,000 deaths. And if you uh, uh, go to the next slide, Brianna, you can see the number of death count, uh, deaths per week with that four week lag as we get new information in. So the highest so far is over 10 a day. And again, we expect to continue at the, about that rate for at least another four weeks until we see case counts come down and again, Just the fact that so many of these deaths are unnecessary is just a real tragedy for New Mexico as a state and all of the families who've been affected by these unnecessary deaths. Next slide. Uh, Treatments, uh, really pleased to see this. Remember uh, on the left, we have remdesivir, which is given to people in the hospital. And you can see we're at our highest rates of uh, remdesivir use actually this year. Uh, this only goes back to July, but we're doing well. Almost everyone who gets admitted. But then on the outpatient side, and we've really, really been pushing this, you can see there are two different uh, types of antibody treatments that are in use right now, Regeneron and what we call BAM-Eddy. And BAM-Eddy is the red bar at the bottom on the right-hand side of the curve. When you add those two together, uh, we're at the highest rate of treatment of those who, have a, who are COVID-positive, have COVID symptoms, are over 64, or they're obese, or they have any risk factor for serious COVID disease. This is given as an outpatient. Uh, We're working with FEMA to come in and and do freestanding administration because our hospitals are uh, as busy as they can be. But this is a success story. And in our modeling team this week, uh, last week, sorry, Los Alamos National Labs uh, feels that uh, about half of the gap in hospitalizations. In other words, half of the reason we're not seeing much higher hospitalizations with the case counts that we're seeing is because of the administration of these antibodies. So I'll, I'll remind you at the end, that if you're COVID positive and have symptoms, and then you're older or obese or have any risk factor for serious disease, please immediately seek out treatment. Next slide. I wanted to just thank again, Presbyterian and Lee, who continue to be the leaders in giving these treatments, but also three other facilities that are stepping up. And some of these are pretty small hospitals, Gallup Indian Medical Center, uh, Gerald Champion. So kudos to you for providing this important treatment to people uh, and keeping people out of the hospitals. Next slide, please. with that, I am going to hand this over now. And Jennifer, if you turn on your camera to Jennifer Vosberg, she's the Associate Chief Nursing Officer at UNM Hospitals, and primarily has been focused on flow and patient uh, throughput. She's been participating in our MAD operations team, the one that meets so frequently early in the morning uh, since the beginning of this recent Delta surge and oversees. On behalf of DOH, who is the official entity running our transfer center, uh, Jennifer's uh, married, has two boys, and uh, she's busy uh, trying to keep up with them when she's not at work, which I don't know when she's not at work, because like many of us, uh, this latest Delta uh, pandemic has really uh, put a strain on our hospital. So Jennifer, uh, Brianna, why don't we go to the next slide? And Jennifer, I'm gonna turn it over to you. Thank you.
2: Good afternoon. Thank you, Secretary Scrace. Again, my name is Jennifer Vosberg. I'm a nurse at University of New Mexico Hospital, and I'm going to be um, representing the State Call and Transfer Center. I'm going to take a few minutes of your time to talk about our current surge in the state of New Mexico, as well as our current staffing situation. So part of my role with the State Call and Transfer Center means that I get to partner and meet several times a week with nursing leaders and hospital leaders throughout the state. And unfortunately, the message is the same. As nursing leaders, we are struggling, we are frustrated, and we often find ourselves in a position to make the least bad decision that we can. It wears on us, our staff, and our patients. What I'm going to be talking about is not unique to one hospital, but is a statewide struggle. And as uh, Secretary Scrace mentioned, this surge is different this time. While the COVID numbers are not as high as they were historically, and certainly not what they were in the winter, thanks to the mask mandate and vaccines, most hospitals never saw a reprieve from the prior surges. And many patients are coming back sicker and more complicated than ever, largely related to uh, a delay in care. This of course is further exacerbated by a reduction in healthcare resources. So you can see um, on this this slide attached, this is the New Mexico hub and spoke model for the transfer center. So the call center was initially established in in March of 2020 with with the sole purpose of level loading the ICUs, meaning we didn't want one hospital as an example in Northern New Mexico to be surging with patients while we had another hospital, let's say in southern New Mexico, with plenty of capacity, the goal was to have everybody at the same same percentage of occupancy, and you can see from this graphic that all of the um, spoke hospitals are tend to be the smaller, more rural hospitals, and they all feed into a larger hub hospital. So the hub hospitals are are the hospitals that we meet with regularly and make sure that we have what we need as a hub to support our spokes. As Secretary Scrace mentioned, this was just one of the strategies um, deployed to ensure that we were optimizing uh, both our physical resources, but our human resources. It's also um, fostered some real collaboration and partnership amongst the hub hospitals throughout the states. One example that I that you know came around earlier on was we had a hospital, a, a hub hospital actually that was running low on ventilators. Because of our partnership and collaboration, there was another hub hospital that had some extra vents and they were able to share. And within several hours, we were able to get those vents to the to the hub hospital that needed them and ensure that our patients had what they needed to um to receive the care they, they required for their, for their hospitalization. During our winter surge, which again, Secretary Grace showed the graphic, we saw many, many more COVID patients than we have now. The call center was always able to place the ICU level patients. Sometimes it took a little longer than others, but we always were able to say, yes, we will find you a bed. This surge is not like that. We are often finding ourselves saying, no, we don't have a bed. I'm so sorry. Please call back tomorrow. This is very distressing. This is not what we got into the business of of healthcare for, and this is very hard for our nurses at the call center. Our nurses try to reconcile the list of calls they receive every 24 hours and do a little loop closure following up. And oftentimes when they call and say, hey, were you ever able to find a bed? The answer is no, and often it is, and the patient died. This is very, very distressing for our staff and for all of the healthcare workers in the facilities that can't provide the care that they were trained to do. Next slide. So you can see from this graphic, there's um, two two levels. There's the ICU capacity, and then there's the non-ICU you can see that the majority of the hospitals are well above 100% capacity. And those that are not are working diligently to get the resources to um, get there. But what that means, if you're a patient, is that we, we have to be creative in how we care for you. Many, many patients are assigned to hall beds or they spend their stay in a doubled room that was never intended for for two patients. We have patients who spend their stay in the operating room or an interventional area such as the cath lab. These spaces were never intended for long-term patient care. There are no bathrooms, there are no TVs. There are not the the normal patient room requirements that patients expect. Not only is there a lack of beds and clinical space, but these patients are sicker than ever before. All of us track acuity within our organizations and our, our acuity has seen a steady increase despite the waxing and weaning of COVID cases. And again, this is due to the delayed care and that patients are sicker. So they spend longer in the hospital and it takes longer for them to free up the bed. Additionally, as, as Secretary Skrace mentioned, we are in a situation now where we downgrade patients to non-ICU level, where historically that would have never happened but we do this so that we can free up ICU space. And emergency departments are no different. Many hospitals across the state are seeing higher than normal ED volume check-ins, which alone is problematic because the system wasn't built for these current volumes. But an increase in volume also means longer wait times, an extremely dissatisfying experience and people leave without being seen. And we know when you leave without being seen, you oftentimes oftentimes come back sicker and in worse shape. Next, I'm going to talk about staffing. While we're grateful for the vaccine mandate and booster availability, it definitely helps us feel better about going home to our families. And it makes us feel more confident, caring for and protecting our patients. Many nurses have retired as a result of the pandemic. We also know of multiple newer nurses that have left the field of nursing because of the pandemic related stressors. While we've only lost less than a percent of nurses to this vaccine mandate, the problem of the shortage continues. And to be clear, we had a nursing shortage prior to the pandemic. However, we are now at crisis levels. We are in a position where the demand significantly outstrips available resources. This is particularly bad in rural New Mexico. Because of the lack of resources, many of these facilities have had to close areas, including ICU beds, which then further exacerbates the overall capacity and compromises care, especially to those in rural New Mexico. We are all working to bring in contract labor um, and, Unfortunately, we're all competing for the same limited resources, both locally and nationally. Healthcare workers, especially nurses, are just getting crushed in this current environment. We have more patients to care for in less than ideal spaces. And understandably, the staff, the patients are frustrated that they aren't being cared for in the spaces that they deserve to be. Many nurses are working in ratios that are higher than normal with less available support services. As an example, there's a shortage of phlebotomists, respiratory therapists, and physical therapists. All of this is in addition to caring for patients that are sicker than they've ever been. Ultimately, patients are not getting the care they need and deserve in New Mexico. This is counter to everything we've been taught to do as nurses and the reason we went into health care. This is leading to an overall sense of helplessness and feeling overwhelmed each and every day. There is a perceived sense of a lack of concern by the general public, which lends itself to the sense of hopelessness and feeling that normalcy will never return. I am proud to say that I've been at UNM for 20 years and I'm honored to care for the population we serve. However, we are in a place where that is being compromised. We are in a crisis right now in the state of New Mexico. We need to get control of our COVID cases immediately so that we can focus on the New Mexicans that need and deserve the care that we once provided. Our nurses are exhausted and losing hope that we will never find our normal again. We did not go into healthcare to say no, but to help anybody and everyone who needs it. Please help us help you and get vaccinated protect yourself, your family, and protect New Mexicans. Thank you for the chance to be here and share with you. Before I turn it over to Secretary Scrace, I'm going to show a quick video by two of our statewide nursing organizations that shows a bit more about the current nursing situation.
3: 122 years ago, a nurse named Clara Barton was the hey, hero Brianna, of the
1: Johnstown Flood. you need to flood. share your screen.
3: Today, in a global...
1: Switch to the video and then uh, and then start over. Thanks.
3: Full health crisis that's claimed... 122 years ago, a nurse named Clara Barton was the hero of the Johnstown Flood. Today, in a global health crisis that's claimed over 4,600 New Mexico neighbors, nurses are still doing heroic things, fighting back flood waves of fear. Over 1,100 American nurses have already died during the pandemic, a sacrifice that didn't have to be so deep. And a nursing shortage has become a major threat to public health. Fewer nurses mean there's no one there for patients. Here's what you can do now to help keep New Mexico safe. When a mask is required, listen to the health professionals and please get vaccinated. While the debate rages on protecting personal freedom and public health, do your part voluntarily. Protect yourself, your family, and healthcare professionals.
2: I'm wondering if someone watching me right now could be the next Clara Barton. Nursing is a profession that desperately needs more people. Fewer staff right now means there's no one there to take care of patients who need us. It's a job with
3: risks, but it's incredibly rewarding. There's nothing like taking care of a person when they need you the most. You won't regret the decision to join the profession
1: of nursing. Well, uh, thank you very much, Jennifer, for that overview. Jennifer uh, has just been an, done an amazing job uh, heading up our transfer center. You can imagine the frustration last year, being able to move people eventually into beds, but this year uh, struggling uh, to do so. So um, we're gonna go into the next slide uh, and I'm gonna start talking about crisis standards of care. I just got a, a, a tweet from of the Albuquerque Journal that we're doing this. So uh, I think that we must have released a press release right about the time of this uh, conference today, which is just great. So let's let's go to the next slide briefly. I'm gonna review, you know, we've been through just, even in the talk today, but certainly over the past uh, two or three months, everything we're doing in New Mexico to try to mitigate the effect of the Delta variant and things like vaccines that uh, were still in the top 10, In terms of our state vaccination rate, we learned a month ago or so from the CDC that in getting adults vaccinated, we dramatically reduced the chances of kids in New Mexico being hospitalized. We mandated healthcare worker vaccines to preserve our healthcare workforce. Uh, Two weeks later, uh, that became a national mandate uh, from the current administration. We've been trying everything we can do to get boosters out to people, making those available and encouraging our primary care physicians. Uh, Mab treatment, uh, monoclonal antibodies are doing great and already showed you that data. Testing, uh, we continue to do well with testing. We could do a little bit better uh, the next couple of weeks, but we also lead in genetic sequencing. We haven't shown you those genetic sequencing frequency maps because Delta has been 100% of our cases since July, and that hasn't changed at all. And then I think uh, I'm particularly proud uh, of all of the work that our delivery system partners have done to actually knit uh, uh, you know, four dozen hospitals in the state of New Mexico into a single sort of hospital ICU system where we can level load and move people back and forth. But as you can see right now, we're in a bit of a gridlock. And so going forward, we're gonna continue to do everything I just mentioned. We have already connected hospitals with FEMA A is willing to pay extra dollars for this very nationally competitive market for travelers, nurses, although frankly, um, I think a reporter from a national chain uh, contacted me three weeks ago, like asking me if I was frustrated with the federal government for not